I'm not really a wrestler. Through the last couple of years, and I've been doing it in my concerts, I've learned a lot about it by just doing it. But I wanted to recapture the old days of the carnivals, where in the, before television, you know, wrestlers used to go from town to town in carnivals and offer $500 to any man that could last in the ring with them for three minutes. So I figured if I could offer a prize and make it like a contest, it could get very, very exciting. And it turned out to be like one of the highlights, one of the most exciting parts of the concert. But I couldn't very well challenge men in the audience because I'd get beaten right away. I, I mean, most men are bigger than me and stronger than me. So I figured if I challenge women, there are enough women who are almost as big or as big as me who they would have a good chance to beat me. Whenever I play a role, no matter if it's a good or a bad, you know, an evil person or a nice person, I believe in being a purist and going all the way with the role. If I'm going to be a villainous wrestler, I believe in going all the way with it. I believe in playing it straight to the hilt. So basically, I could live without the wrestling. Junk food supper. 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 This is your weekly bite-sized episode of fun in between our regular monthly episodes of the Junk Food Dinner podcast. Uh, this is one of your hosts, Sean Byron, joined by our intrepid ace reporter, Parker Bowman. Uh, Kevin Moss will not be joining us this week because, as we established last week... He was murdered and then set on fire while celebrating his birthday. <laughs> which really is kind of unfortunate, but but hopefully he will be among the living again in time for us to, uh, to talk with him uh, on the next JFD, uh, which will be, as we mentioned before, coming out monthly now. Uh, but as this is a supper... I feel like it's it's my my duty and and my um, obligation to to ask Parker directly because Kevin's not here to do it. How was your week, man? <laughs> um, pretty good. Kind of kind of surreal. I spent like a lot of the day the other day with like uh, the vice president of Lando Lakes Butter and like a congressman oh. <laughs> for work because of all yeah. this like, crazy <laughs> flooding. Um, so do you think you bit. now have an in to meet that foxy Native American woman on the packaging? I think that they got rid of her, but if she's still around, what? then I think I can meet her. What? The, we we can't have Native Americans on butter packages anymore. I don't think so. I I yeah, I think that they changed the mascot. I think she might be gone. Man, who loves butter more than the natives? Like their number one food is fried bread. <laughs> that is true. That is true. You ever true. been on a reservation? That's like what they eat. So I don't know. That's jacked up. Yeah. Yeah. There's some like native like taco trucks and stuff around here. And yeah. Uh, like food trucks. Um, but yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. They, oh. I should have seems, asked him. Yeah. It seems like a blown opportunity. You had the, the man on the inside and you didn't grill him about this big controversy. Yeah. I be, I'm not a very good journalist. I was just like glad handing and telling everybody that I respect what they're up to. I, yeah, I love what his, you guys are doing there in, in, in Washington. I love it. Keep it up. Yeah. You thanked him for the jobs that he brought to your community mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and all of these things. I thanked him for the butter. He just gave me handfuls of butter. It was really weird. I don't know why I did that. <laughs> well, you know, I wouldn't complain. 
Yeah. Well, so that was like the weirdest thing. Nothing else really super exciting. I know you had an exciting week, though. I'm eager to talk about that. Yeah, I mean, I I, I had a, a relatively exciting week. I, I guess on on my scale of weeks, you know, I, I tend to come in often and just say that I streamed some movies online. But uh, this was the big WrestleMania weekend in LA, and and so I I partook in that. But uh, before we get into it, did you watch any of the WrestleMania, or, or am I just going to be talking to myself here? I did. I watched. Uh, I watched. I technically watched it all, but there were definitely a few matches that I did not pay one single bit of attention to. Um, yeah, that's while fair. watching. Uh, but yeah, but I did watch both nights. All all of it. It's so much wrestling, dude. Like <laughs> I, WrestleMania weekend is one thing. I and, and I guess like okay, fine. If, if you're gonna do a blowout. This is the time to do it. But like between, you know, Friday is the SmackDown Hall of Fame. Then they got Saturday, Sunday, WrestleMania. Then Monday is Raw. I mean, if you're committed to watching all of this, what even is like, that's like 15 hours or 16 hours or something ridiculous worth of content over a weekend span. It's nuts. I mean, that's almost like what we used to do for a junk food dinner every week. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a lot. And I mean, that's not even counting like that WrestleMania is like this big cottage industry where like all the other like indie federations do like are also in LA doing all their shows like 24 hours a day. I feel like there's like shows going on like outside of WWE. So yeah, it's it's a lot of wrestling, but it's definitely a lot of WWE wrestling. I mean, it's so much like, I mean, it, and, but like without really having a ton like i know, for I know being it's two very night, hollow <laughs> yeah for being two nights like five hours a night for two nights in a row like there are a lot of matches where it was just like uh here's six tag teams doing a match with like no stakes and no feuds at all like just all these like throwaway filler matches like for yeah, being the, as much the as kinds of is. matches that you would air at a house show or, or whatever <laughs> not, not even on tv you know yeah just to be like, these guys need, need to get in their reps or whatever, do some practice maneuvers in the ring. Yeah, it's pretty wild. So like, yeah, like for as much wrestling as there is, there's really only like half a show's worth of wrestling on WrestleMania weekend. Well, and even outside of like the actual wrestling shows, I feel like WWE is now producing so much content. Like they do this like pre-show for WrestleMania on both days where it's like, I think two hours maybe of Booker T and a couple of idiots sitting there and, and like theorizing what's going to happen in these phony contests. I mean, you don't, I don't need like you to run me down stats on, you know, what these wrestlers have done in the past. Like it's, you know, it's a storyline. It's a, you know, I don't know. Like, and it's just like meaningless garbage that they're like regurgitating over and over again. And then you look at like the Peacock WWE network section and I never realized until recently, like these motherfuckers are like producing like dozens of reality shows concurrently and all this stuff. Like Mick <laughs> Foley had a show about his daughter or something. And mm-hmm. there's like, like 15 different shows that I had never fucking heard of that I had to scroll past even to get to WrestleMania. It was wild. Yeah. There's a lot of that. They had a show for a while back when it was still the WWE network. I mean, I'm sure it's still on Peacock, but I don't think they do the show anymore where like, they would interview wrestlers and get them to tell like their wacky, like on the road stories. And then they animated it. Like they would take the real interview and then just animate their story. And I thought that that show was really fun. 
That sounds cool. I, I think that there's, isn't there like a Mike Judge thing that's about musicians that's kind of a similar thing that I think Kevin Moss is a big fan of? Oh, yeah, I think so. That sounds familiar. Very nice. Oh, okay. I guess that's, that's a form <laughs> of confirmation. It's the closest that I had to a yes at my fingertips. Um, <laughs> well, in Japan, it's very common for those kinds of shows to exist. In Japan, it is very common. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, SmackDown was the first thing that I went to. I, I went to the, you know, the Friday Night SmackDown. Got to see the Andre the Giant Battle Royale, which I thought was fun. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of a sucker for a Battle Royale. Uh, these ones are kind of crazy in that they like bring all the guys out to the ring at once instead of having them come out every few minutes like a Royal Rumble. And I thought, I don't, you know, for one of those kind of big, dumb uh, brawls with 20 dudes in the ring, I, I thought it was kind of fun and entertaining. I didn't see the SmackDown, but yeah, Battle Royals are always fun. Except for when they're the reverse battle royals, like Impact used to do a thing where it was a reverse battle royal and you were eliminated, like everybody fought on the outside. And if you got thrown into the ring, you were eliminated. And it's the stupidest fucking thing of all time. Whoa, I've never heard of that. that yeah, that sounds <laughs> ridiculous. Um, yeah, so so that was cool. The rest of SmackDown was kind of boring. Then they did the Hall of Fame ceremony, which I'm glad to have gone to. I mean, I went there pretty much because I wanted to lay my eyeballs on Ric Flair one more time before the motherfucker dies, which shockingly, he looked to be in good health. I mean, he was like pretty spry, walking around pretty well and cracking jokes, it seemed like. Um, but that show, I mean, the Hall of Fame thing is just, it's pretty boring. It's its like two and a half hours of wrestlers coming up and poorly reading from prompter. And I was sitting on like the the TV like side, you know, like where I was on camera. So what I could see was them reading from the prompter that was, you know, over by the camera. And so like having the experience of like sitting there and like reading what Rey Mysterio is going to say, like right before he says it, it, it I mean, wrestling already feels so fake, but that like really mm-hmm. just kind of sapped some of the. I don't know the, the vibe out of it, where it's like, all right, this everything just felt so pre-planned and scripted, you know, which of course it is, but it was kind of boring. Um, it was cool to see Muda. It was Mick Foley was there. He went off script. Flair also went off script. I think they were maybe the only two guys that seemed to be willing to talk to a crowd without sticking like you know strictly to prompter. Um, other than that, yeah, I mean, you know, it's a SmackDown. That was at the Staples Center, which I think they now call the the Crypto.com Arena, which is a name that I will refuse to ever utter, I guess, other than <laughs> yeah. that one time I just did right now. Yeah, that's going to age pretty well, I think. I think that's... Yeah. <laughs> it'll still be called that in five years. I'm certain of it. Yeah. People are not already making jokes about it nonstop mm-hmm. or anything, so... <laughs> But cool arena, I guess. I mean, that's where the um, the Lakers play. You know, it's it's like a twenty thousand seater, which I think is maybe like the biggest venue that you want wrestling to be in. I think probably ideal for wrestling is more like two thousand people, but like twenty thousand, you know, you get the kind of live excitement atmosphere, but it's not so big that the wrestlers look like ants in the middle of you know the arena. Uh, but so the next day was Saturday. We went to the SoFi Stadium, which is like this fancy new stadium that they built in Inglewood. And they built it in this like primarily residential neighborhood. I, I'm guessing, I think that they had to just like bulldoze people's houses or something to build this fucking thing. Uh, but as a result, they built it in a place that has no freeway access, 
no train access, and no parking. And it is a fucking nightmare. <laughs> I've, I've heard this for the past few years, you know, whenever there's a football game, people talk about it, like it just completely destroys the entire west side of Los Angeles just becomes impassable. So we had to like plan to be there like three hours early. We parked at a high school that we had to pay $50 to park at, uh, which was cheap compared to, I think it was like 500 bucks to park at the stadium, uh, which I don't even know how people make this much money that they can afford to pay $500 for parking for a event, but they do, Mm -hmm. I guess. Um, and the stadium, I don't know, like it, it's, it was huge. It holds like 100,000 people or something ridiculous like this. But at the same time, they designed it in such a way that like when the event was over, the egress path for all 100,000 attendees went through like multiple sets of single-sized doors. So like we were waiting in this line that didn't move for like an hour to get out. And we're like, why is this line not moving? Like, Or we're taking like one step every like 10 seconds. And we finally got to the point where we're like, oh, you, you guys have been shoving everybody through this single door. And I guess that's why. <laughs> why would they do what? Like, that should be the easy part is getting people out. Like, you, you open up all these double doors all over the place. Like, that's what stadiums are good for. There's double doors everywhere, huge doors. You would think so. But, but no, they designed the system where, like, if you're on the floor, which we were down low on the floor, <clears throat> which sounds more impressive than it is. Like, the seats were not that great. Um, you have to like walk all the way back up to the top level of the stadium to get out. And to do that, they don't even give you like an escalator or even like a direct path or stairs. You get a rampway that goes all the way around the stadium, this massive stadium, and it snakes around it. So you walk like two miles up this rampway that every once in a while has these like single doors that you got to go through. It's insane. Um, and then like the screens crash during a couple of the matches. So Mm-hmm. I mean, on the whole, I would say thumbs down for SoFi Stadium. But I did have fun at the event, you know, on Saturday. Uh, I guess we'll, we'll, let's look at the card real quick. There was the Theory-Cena match. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never been a big John Cena fan. I'm also not a huge Austin Theory fan. Uh, match was okay from what I could see. This is one of the ones where the screen was down. Uh, that's a bummer. Yeah, I thought it was like fine. It was like a fine kickoff match. Yeah, I like John seen- Cena. It seemed like Cena was in decent enough shape, you know, considering he's a guy that we don't see that much of anymore. I thought he might come out and just kind of blow it, but he, but he didn't. You know, he was he was capable, it seemed like. I like that men's showcase match, the next match, which had Street Profits and Strowman and Ricochet, Alpha Academy, and the Viking Raiders. Uh, I've, I really like Braun Strowman and, and Ricochet, and I actually like all these teams, uh, even the Viking Raiders. I think they're all uh, various levels of fun. It was a bummer that Otis had the worst swamp ass of all time. And the commentators were calling them out on it. Like, what did this guy shit his pants or something? Um, I felt bad for the guy because I, I love Otis. Yeah, I don't know much about Otis. Like, I've seen him in a few matches and stuff. And I, I don't know, I kind of just don't understand. Like, it's like sometimes he's like comic relief, but other times he's like a serial killer or something. Like, I, or that's the way it seems I don't know, from his swamp ass, I guess. But uh, but I like Ricochet a great deal. So I was happy that he was at WrestleMania. Yeah, they, they did some cool spots, some high-flying spots, like one where they had all the guys stacked up on, uh, like on top of each other's shoulders, and then Ricochet like jumped off the top rope and dropped everybody down. I thought it was a, a, an entertaining match. Seth Rollins, Logan Paul. 
I mean, I know that WrestleMania has a tr- tradition of bringing in celebrities or, or whatever, but like these, these Paul brothers are of no interest to me. Uh, it doesn't even generate like heel heat for me or, or anything like that. I'm just, this is like a big tune out moment for me. Uh, I, I kind of thought this was fun. I liked the guy in the, the sports drink costume. I liked that big elbow drop with him. I, th- I don't know. I thought it was fun. Like, usually I think Seth Rollins is kind of boring. Like, he's very good, but like good in like a boring way, you know? Uh, if that makes sense, it probably doesn't. But uh, I don't know. I like, I haven't really been paying attention to the stories going into this. I haven't watched it in a long time. So, like, I didn't really get what I, I didn't understand who was the good guy and who was the bad guy in this. So, like, it was a little confusing, but I thought the match itself was enough. Well, I think that's kind of a, a typical problem right now in WWE is I don't think that they know how to establish a face or a heel or I don't know that the crowds want it to be that binary anymore. And maybe it's just been like this, like post Stone Cold and like post Attitude Era. But it, it feels especially like that right now where like, you know, like a match like Charlotte Flair versus Rhea Ripley. I think that they're trying to like, what is that? It, who's the heel there? Like, is Ripley the heel? I mean, she's with Dominic, who has tons of heel heat, who I mm-hmm. think is maybe one of the only effective heels right now in the game, at least in WWE. But I, she, it feels yeah. to me like she's coming over as a face. Like, the crowd loved her. The crowd was definitely rooting for her over Charlotte Flair the entire match. Yeah, and then Charlotte Flair was also doing heelish stuff. Like, she would, like, get her in a headlock and then, like, slap her head and stuff, which is, like a heel move, but yeah, like Michael Cole kept telling me about how Charlotte is like a good guy and how she's trying to vanquish the evil goth Rhea Ripley. And it's like, well, what is it? (laughs) That's not what's happening in the ring here. Like, yeah, it's it's weird. Did you like the match though? I I thought it was really good. And that one bump where Charlotte landed, you know, flat on her nose. Oh yeah. Pretty pretty gnarly. Yeah. I usually don't like Charlotte Flair, but I liked that match a great deal. I thought it was very good. Uh, we also had Trish, Lita, and Becky versus Damage Control. And, I mean, I think it's cute that they're bringing back old-timers, you know, and, and let them have another run. I don't know about letting them hold belts for any extended period of time. Uh, but this match was fine. I, I like Damage Control. I like all three of them. Uh, Becky Lynch, I'm not really a, a fan of. And Trish and Lita, I mean, again, just, I guess, kind of fun to see them again. Yeah, I liked all these people. Alita, like, was definitely like somebody used a hack on her where like she was running in slow motion the entire match, which <laughs> yeah. was like, <laughs> yeah. a little unfortunate. Um, especially like, I mean, it wouldn't have been so bad if like it was all other young ladies, but then like she would tag in Trish and like Trish is doing, you know, it looks like she hasn't been gone for 20 years at all. Like, but Lita was, looked really bad. It was unfortunate because Lita rules. I think maybe the most remarkable moment of the entire event, though, was the fact that Trish was able to contain her breasts within that shirt that she was wearing. I don't think that they, yeah, they didn't pop out at all. I mean, other than the amount that they were supposed to pop out, but (laughs) uh, Dominic versus Rey Mysterio. I like this match a lot. Um, I, I think it's a fun feud. I like the way that this is developed. I think that some people are confusing heel heat for like, not being good at his job or something like that. I've run into a lot of people who are like, ah, oh, Dominic sucks. I hate that guy. And I'm like, well, yeah, that's, that's the point. Like you're, you're supposed to dislike him. Like he's not supposed to see, it's almost like Andy Kaufman where it's like, 
He's not supposed to seem like a credible badass. He's a sniveling little idiot, you know, and that's, and that's what you hate about him. Yeah. I mean, it's probably especially confusing because like so many people have that kind of heat where it's like, you're not mad at them. You just don't want to be watching them. Like Miz a lot of the time or Austin theory or people like that. So like people might just think that all the villains are like that, but Dominic rules, like the fact that he's got Eddie Guerrero's haircut and he like tells his mom to shut up and like, yeah, he's like throwing drinks in his sister's face. Yeah, it's wonderful. Like he came out like wearing like Rey Mysterio's iconic mask from like what is it, Halloween Havoc? Like great, great stuff. Like he's he's wonderful. Yeah, I'm I'm into it. I mean, I think it's to me that feels like classic wrestling too to have these kind of family feuds. Um, yeah. Pat McAfee versus The Miz was awful, um, and and I, I think it, I mentioned this on the Discord, but I think it is it's a travesty that you would air that match after the Charlotte Flair Rhea Ripley match, which was, you know, a great match that I thought should have been the main event. I mean, that's, that is a world title there versus you got a gimmick match right after that. And then mm-hmm. the tag titles as the main event, uh, which is Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn versus the Usos. But I'm, I'm guessing that Pat McAfee uh, versus the Miz was something that you pretty much tuned out on. Yeah. I didn't like that. Like, I think it's set, like, despite what I just said about Miz, because I mean, WWE paints him into this stupid cartoonish corner where he has to like lose impromptu matches to Pat McAfee and stuff all the time. But I think other than that, I think he's really good at being a heel and I think he's very charismatic and I will definitely go to bet for the Miz because I think he rules. And if he was allowed to do, to be a good heel and not do all this stupid cartoon character shit, like where he loses to, you know, whatever sitcom star comes into the WWE every week, I think he could be great. So it was very disheartening, like both just the match in general and the fact that this uh, happened to Miz two nights in a row where he has to do this stupid nonsense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I feel like I haven't been exposed to the good Miz stuff. Maybe I need to dig deeper. Um, did he come up in NXT or where where did he come from before his his uh, reign here? He, his, he first showed up in the WWE ECW days on the sci-fi channel, which are very oh. underrated days. Okay. Um, but yeah, he was, he was very good. Him and John Morrison were a tag team for a long time and he had some good feuds with like CM Punk and stuff as a, as a young man. It was very good stuff. I feel like now is, I mean, while the current product of wrestling that's being made right now, at least in terms of WWE is not that great. It's still kind of a good time to get into wrestling in that, there's a lot of guys on the top right now who have a huge body of work that I'm not familiar with because I was tuned out. You know, I, I watched wrestling religiously like up through, I don't know, 2002 or something like that. And then uh, kind of dipped off, you know, until the past six months. But now I can go back and watch like there's a, a women's war games match that I watched a couple nights ago that's got like two thirds of damage control and Rhea Ripley in it from like the NXT days. That's great. So it's it's a cool time to be like, well, you know, these are like recommend recommendations of people that you can look up that are on your TV right now. And maybe, yeah, they're doing boring stuff right now, but uh, you can stream all this stuff in one place. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, that's the good thing about a lot of the people on the roster now is like you can like look at somebody like Rhea Ripley or Bailey and be like, oh, this is like I kind of like what they're doing. But because wrestling sucks, it's like kind of not that great. But then you find all their stuff in NXT and it's wonderful. yeah yeah it's 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 fun which makes me wonder like should i just be watching nxt 
and and maybe I will make that transition at some point. Who knows? I think NXT. I haven't watched NXT in a while, but I think it sucks now just as much as the other stuff. But it was wonderful for like ten years. Hmm. All right. Uh, I'm guessing that you enjoyed this main event of Kevin Ko Owens and Sami Zayn uh, versus the Usos. These are four guys. I don't give a crap about any of them, and I feel like they eat up so much of my TV time. Um, match was fine. It was neither bad nor good, in my opinion. Uh, crowd went nuts for it. it it's it's kind of shocking to me to see like what the fans are marking out for these days, but I feel like there was an equal amount of love for all four of these competitors from each individual person. Like the guy next to me was <laughs> was chanting Kevin Owens and then later rooting for the Usos. And I, I don't think that he thought that was weird. I think people yeah. are just like, I like what WWE is selling me. Like, oh, these are my guys. They're the main guys because they're on TV all the time. I noticed that too. Like there's a scene, like right after uh, Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn won, like they cut to the, a crowd reaction and it was a guy wearing the blo- a Bloodline shirt and he was cheering. And it's like, you're wearing the shirt of the guys who just lost. What? Why are you cheering? Like, like, I think you're right. I think people just like it all sometimes. Or like, I mean, it seems like most of the time they like none of it. But uh, yeah. but yeah, like, if you know, they find this, the bloodline storyline so compelling that I think that they just like everybody involved, even though it's just the storyline they like and they should be disliking the Usos for being bad guys or something. I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's, it's weird the way people react to wrestling now. Yeah. It's, I don't know. I feel like though the crowds were very hot both at SmackDown and, and WrestleMania, like people were really into it. Um, very passionate. So, I mean, I, that's good, I guess. Um, I thought Saturday overall was better than Sunday. Uh, we can run down Sunday real quick. Brock versus Omos. I thought that this match was a joke. Uh, mm-hmm. Omos sucks. Uh, let's get him mm-hmm. some real wrestling training and then bring him back. Cause yeah, he's a big dude and that would be scary if he knew how to wrestle. Uh, but like a four minute match against Brock Lesnar, who is way past his prime as well. Not a great way to open up your card. Mm-hmm. I agree. Women's showcase, uh, Ronda Rousey and Shayna Baszler versus Liv Morgan and, um, Raquel Rodriguez and Natalia and Shotzi versus, Chelsea Green and Sonia somebody. Um, <laughs> I don't know who she is. Uh, I like Ronda Rousey okay, actually. I, I know that most pro wrestling fans don't really like her because she came from a different world and maybe she's not the best at the things that you want out of a pro wrestler. Um, and maybe, I think, does she kind of like stiff her components sometimes? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, she uh, hurts people all the time. Yeah, so that I mean that sucks, but I do think that she's got the look. Like she looks like a badass. Like she's believable, and I think she's compelling. Um, and she does some stuff in the ring once in a while where I'm like, oh, that's kind of cool. I don't know. I, I like to see submissions and stuff like that. Uh, but this match overall was kind of lame. I agree. I like that Shotzi was there because I think she's super cool, but the match was pretty lame. But they didn't even let her drive her cool little ATV down that huge rampway, which I thought was I, the only reason they built that rampway. Yeah, I know. Like her whole thing is she she like drives to the ring in a little tank, and they didn't even give her that. How sad. Yeah, that was pretty jacked up. Uh, Gunther versus Sheamus versus Drew McIntyre. Um, I thought this was good. 
I like Drew McIntyre. I like Sheamus. Gunther, I mean, I could kind of take or leave. Um, somebody's got to get Imperium some new ring trunks, man, because I'm seeing like full detail of their scrotums. You know what I mean? Like in every fucking match. I think I could, I could reproduce their scrotums by memory at this point. Every intricate yeah. fold. That Yeah, that's how Finn Balor used to do. He used to wear tinier trunks than he wears now. And like you could definitely see like the outline of the tip of his penis every single night on television. It was, it was wild to see. Yeah. And it, I mean, it's like, you know, these guys are already showing a lot, like, you know, leave a little to the imagination. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Put um, a veil down there. I'm also su- surprised that Seamus is still kicking it. Like, and he, and he seems like kind of youthful. Like, I mean, for his age, I'm, dude's like 45 or something. I think been around for fucking wow. ever and it's still looking good yeah i think it probably prolongs your career if the only bumps that you take are just chops to the chest rather than actual <laughs> bumps well but he, he's the the world's best uh chest chop salesman in terms of like you chop the guy once and it's it's blazing red on his on his <laughs> chest immediately you can see the imprint you know what i mean that is true uh bianca belair versus asuka um, I like both of these competitors. Good match. Um, you know, I, I got no complaints on this one. Thought it was a real solid match. Yeah. I like Asuka. Um, Bianca Belair is all right. I don't know. Her, her wholesomeness kind of gets on my nerves, but, but it was a good match. Yeah. I mean, they're, they do kind of, she's like the female John Cena where she comes out with kids and, you know, celebrates and does all that stuff. But I don't know. I, I, she's pretty talented. I think as a wrestler and, Got a good look. Um, Shane O'Mac then came out and immediately <laughs> tore his quadricep into a thousand pieces in what was, even if that didn't happen and like everything went quote unquote as planned with whatever they had planned there, it probably still would have been the low light of the night. But Jesus Christ, Shane O'Mac, what happened? It seemed like, so he just seriously injured his leg doing what jumping up and down on his own. Like he didn't even take a bump. No, he went for the leapfrog, you know, like, yeah, that's what it was. (laughs) And he just, yeah, he, it was like two seconds in. he goes for a leapfrog and then he just falls down and starts screaming in pain. And Miz doesn't know what to do. And, uh, it's very confusing. And then Snoop Dogg saved the day. I will say, out of anybody involved, Snoop Dogg seemed like the only guy that had any lick of sense. Like he was the only guy that knew like how to respond. Like, oh, hey, there's a crowd here. Maybe we should do something. I feel like the referee and the Miz and Shane and, and everybody else involved, like at ringside, they're just kind of like scratching their asses. Like, oh, what do we do now? Like, mm-hmm. we're trying to do a WrestleMania, and one of our wrestlers can't wrestle. Like, what should we do? And I'm sure that somebody, you know whispered to snoop like hey go take care of this and here's what you can do but good on him for for you know jumping in and looking professional yeah yeah i wonder how it went down because like i yeah i wonder if somebody like some referee on the outside was like hey snoop just go punch the miz like i wonder if the miz knew like that that was gonna happen like because yeah it seemed like it seemed like snoop just took it upon himself was just like hey i gotta do something here nobody else is gonna do it and he just punched this man right in the face my guess is that they just jumped to the finish, like that they had already planned mm-hmm. for a yeah. Snoop Dogg run-in at the end. You know, maybe yeah. like Shane was going to be nearly defeated by the Miz, and then Snoop runs in. 
Because it seemed to me like he had practiced some of these moves, and maybe he just does that on his own time. Like I would believe that Snoop Dogg is probably a big wrestling fan. Um, but yeah, dude, dude looked decent. I mean, not good, and I still don't want him on my WrestleMania. And <laughs> and beyond that, he's probably a bad person if you read Wikipedia and you know some things he's done in his life. So between him and Lil Uzi Vert, who is a, a verified bad person, uh, you know, not not the best lineup of celebs, but. Uh, then we had Edge versus the demon Finn Balor, the Hell in the Cell. So what's up with this demon? Is is this what Finn Balor does sometimes? I, I didn't know about this demon. Sometimes. I don't know too much about, uh, you know, I kind of like drift in and out now nowadays. So I, I've probably seen a handful of Finn Balor matches. But like, yeah, I think this is sort of like the equivalent of like when mankind would turn into Cactus Jack for like a super crazy grudge match like i feel like that's what finn balor does when he turns into the demon it's like it, he's letting you know he's serious all right all right i i kind of liked it and honestly i i think i think the makeup is a good idea for finn because without it he just kind of looks like you left austin theory out in the sun too long and it kind of shriveled <laughs> up a little bit you know like he's got that look he, yeah he definitely looks like a 12 year old who went who like suddenly became like 65 years old. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's yeah. Sometimes the camera catches the guy from the right angle and it's, it's alarming, I guess is the only word I can, I can think of. Um, but this was decent. I don't know. I feel like there were a few blown spots in this. Right. And then they had that moment where Finn like cut his head on a ladder or something. And then they had to, do like a quick referee stoppage to super glue up his, his cut, which is that a thing that they do now? Yeah. You're not allowed to bleed anymore. Is that true? Uh, yeah. Yeah. They got like a no bleeding policy. Then, I mean, like, I'm sure like he was probably like was in danger, you know? Cause like, it wasn't like a, you know, a pract- like he wasn't, you know, using razor blades like they do, you know, like it was, he actually hit his head on a huge ladder. So they probably needed to check him out. But yeah, I think, they don't, yeah, they don't have blood in matches anymore. If they do, it's like very super rare. And that's, that is, that is wild. Yeah. I, I, I was surprised to see that. I'm like, but I mean, I guess, I mean, the guy's health and everything or whatever, but I don't know. These guys are wrestlers. <laughs> they're supposed to be tough, right? Yeah. It makes them like, seem less tough when this guy is the demon and suddenly you got like medical personnel hovering over him, you know, tending yeah. to his wound. Especially when the whole point of the match is like, we're going to lock these two guys in here. They're going to fight to the death. One of them's going to turn back into a vampire. One of them's a demon. And then they're like, hold on, hold on. We got to fix this cut. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, if it's going to be like that, maybe just don't do that. Just be like, oh, it's a, you know, this is going to be a nice, clean, collegiate style wrestling match, you know, like a Luthez style <laughs> competition. Do that instead, I guess, if that's where you want to go with it. But yeah. I don't know. Overall, it was okay. It was not, not the best hell in the cell, but. And and I'm not sure about that choice to to dye uh, Finn Balor's beard like jet black. That just looked kind of weird. I don't know. Yeah, I agree. Roman Reigns versus Cody Rhodes, a fairly boring main event. I thought for WrestleMania, um, I think that the right guy won. I don't think Cody Rhodes is ready for the title. I think it's premature. I think probably they are they are going to put it on Cody eventually. Uh, but I think that they think that they can milk more out of this, um, the storyline between the two of them. I wish that they wouldn't in a way, because it's, I find it to be very boring, but 
But at the same time, I'm also like, I can't really see Cody as the champ just yet. So I, I guess it does make sense for us to keep on keeping on with this kind of boring feud between the two of them. Yeah, it's a very boring feud. Like, uh, yeah, and Cody Rhodes, like, he's very bad. Like, it got turned into a thing where, like, that Roman Reigns mentioned in, like, a promo leading up to this. But it's like, he's, I mean, he's right. Like, I mean, it's like Cody Rhodes was in WWE and he sucked. So he went to start his own company where he sucked and nobody liked him. And now he's back and we're supposed to think he's, like, really, really good suddenly. Like, no, he still sucks. Like. He's not very good. I mean, I think that they're just trying to leverage the famous family name. And just that seems to be the big thing that WWE does now is like, you know, we've got these family legacies that continue on through our company. And, and I, all right, fine. You know, cool. He's, he's got the same tongue as dusty that flaps out over his teeth in an awkward way when he talks. Okay, great. But he, (laughs) he doesn't have the charisma of a dusty Rhodes. He doesn't have the interview skills of a dusty roads and the in ring is not that good. Like one thing I noticed with Cody is he's very bad at covering up the parts where he calls his spots. Like there's just a million moments in this main event match at WrestleMania where the camera is like close up on his face and you just see him looking into the eyes of Roman Reigns and saying things like, all right, I'm going to the turnbuckle or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) It's just like, you guys can't figure out how to whisper this or you do a headlock first and, and do it in there. I don't know. Yeah, it's pretty ridiculous. He's definitely the third best Rhodes family member. Yeah, I think that is fair. And I mean, if you want to go extended, I'm sure that there's probably even more. That's true. Yeah. Some of their wives are probably more entertaining than Cody. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. But that, so that was a WrestleMania weekend. Um, You liked it? You liked WrestleMania? Uh, Night one was fun. Night two was not as fun. Yeah, I think that's fair. Well, yeah, you de- you definitely went to the right the right night. Yeah, I think so. I'm, I'm glad to have been there. I, I consider myself to be a, a Rhea Ripley fan, and so to see her win her first world title, uh, that's cool. I'm into it. Yeah, she's good. Well, hopefully, um, our listeners are at least mildly inter- in- interested in wrestling. Otherwise, that was probably the most boring 30 <laughs> minutes of their life. Uh, but at least it was only 30 minutes because Bowman and I had to deal with, you know, 55 hours of this stuff over the past few days. So, yeah, um, we distilled it down to its core essence for you. Exactly. Exactly. That's, that's what we do here for you on the show. Um, where, where do we want to go to now on this, on this episode of junk food supper? Should we throw to voicemails? We want to talk about anything else We, we want to do our, I know that we have a topic this week. We do have a topic that we got to get to, um, and we got a couple of voicemails. But real quick, I do want to mention to you, happy anniversary. Uh, Facebook let me know that tomorrow, you know, it gave me like, you know, the, the this happened X amount of years ago. Tomorrow okay. is the 10-year anniversary of the day we first met Sean Byron. So happy oh. anniversary to you. And a, was it a monster palooza? It was the monster palooza. Wow. Wow. We were so young. We it seems just like seen only Face yesterday. Killing three. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we, and we met those guys. Indeed. They were very nice. We got posters from them. Yep. I got them framed on my wall or near my wall. Actually, they're not actually hanging up, but they're visible. 
yeah. if you're looking at the wall. Uh, so I just wanted to mention that real quick. But yeah, we do have, we got a big segment and we got two voicemails. Do you want to do the, let's do the segment first and then voicemails. Does yeah, okay. Yeah. So tell me about this segment that, that you had envisioned for this week. Okay. Well, the segment that I have envisioned, uh, we're doing here in a little bit, we're going to be reviewing uh, an Andy Kaufman documentary. And in that movie, spoiler alert, uh, the lines between fiction and reality are blurred. And so I thought that we could do a good, the bad, and the ugly of times where we were not sure if what we were seeing was real or fake in media. Like if you were to be watching Andy Kaufman fight Jerry Lawler, perhaps you did not know if that was real or fake. Uh, So things like that. So a good example, a bad example, and an ugly example. This, of course, is a segment uh, invented by the Kissing Contest podcast. Mm -hmm. Uh, JKJK. Um, Well, and and so so I, I, I will say before we get into our picks, in the context of this edition of the good, the bad, and the ugly, I have no idea what good, bad, or ugly mean. And so it's going to be pretty <laughs> arbitrary. I mean, you might argue that's always the case, but I think especially this week. I definitely think that's always the case. So yeah, um, <laughs> I'll, I'll go first to, to uh, maybe set the tone with which, you know, and explain why I find my things to be good, bad, or ugly. But yeah, I think that you could probably rearrange these <laughs> to any degree on my list. But um, so my good example of this is wrestling related. So if you hated the the previous segment of wrestling, I'm, I'll get, I'll go through it quickly, but I thought this was um, a lot of fun. <laughs> oh, Kevin liked it. Yeah. Kevin loves it. Uh, when I was a young man, I kind of got out of wrestling. Like I loved it when I was a young little kid. Uh, you know, I loved Rick Rude and Earthquake and all these guys. Um, Brutus the Barber Beefcake. Oh, I did love him. I did love him. Um, and then I kind of got out of it. Like wrestling got kind of bad in the early 90s. And I, you know, for a few years I got out of it. And then, um, I don't know, one day I in like 1995 or 96, I was just like flipping through the channels and curious about things. And I, I watched Raw. And it was the episode where Mike Tyson was a guest And Stone Cold Steve Austin uh, interrupted him being the guest. He was like being interviewed by Vince McMahon or something in the ring. Stone Cold Steve Austin comes out. He flips Mike Tyson off. Mike Tyson angrily pushes him. And then they start fighting. And after like 10 minutes of tussling around and Vince McMahon yelling, you've ruined my show. I hate you. Um, And all this, like the show goes off the air. And I was just like, what on earth has happened like, like this has to be real. Like all three of these guys. And I mean, there were other people that like security guards and entourages in the ring and stuff. Like all three of these guys were like super believable and looked very upset in real life. And like, just the fact that like this was happening, I didn't know, like, it's such a far cry from like the wrestling I had seen previous. Like the last time I watched wrestling, it was probably like, uh, like the Quebecers versus <laughs> like, I don't know, two guys wearing laser guns on their arms or some stupid <laughs> shit, you know? Yeah. Like, uh, so I was just like, Oh my God. And like the next day I was just like, you know, there was no internet. I couldn't just look it up to see if it was real or fake or what the internet was saying. I was just like, like the whole next day at school, I was just like thinking about it. Like, Oh my God. Like, was that real? Was that fake? What happened? And from there, I mean, I watched raw every single night for like the next 
10 years. So, um, so it was a very good, uh, I mean, a you know, very good example. I feel like of, th- of something that hooked me in because I did not know if it was real or fake. Were you watching wrestling at the time? Do you remember this happening? I don't remember my reaction to it or, or my feelings about it, but, it, but I do remember the moment. Um, and I think that that is something where, you know, oftentimes when you blend like the worlds of boxing and wrestling, it can seem, you know, more real that way. I feel like Muhammad Ali showed up, you know, a little bit in like some wrestling matches in like the late seventies. Right. And it was always kind of like, mm-hmm. is this a real competition? Um, yeah, I, I think that was, I, I guess for you, your entry point into the attitude era, but like that whole early attitude era st- stuff is probably some of the stuff that I want to revisit the most with WWE that, that I have like the, the least clear memories of um, when they were kind of transitioning from being more wholesome into this kind of, um, you know, anti-hero ass kicking kind of a mode, which eventually got pretty stale, you know, when it became all about like the McMahon family feuding with Stone Cold and every week it would be, you know, Stephanie and, and Shane O'Mac on TV, like that stuff was kind of dull, but that early like transition into that where they're, kind of looking at ECW, I guess, and kind of taking some things from there and trying to figure out like, how do we change our business up? I think that stuff is pretty interesting. Yeah. I've gone back since the uh, network has all that stuff and watched a bunch of it. And it's all very good. Even when it's bad, it's still charming. Yeah. It's still, you know, it's like if you're not into the time that gold dust, you know, like wore a green Afro for some reason, like, I mean, it's at least it's still interesting. Yeah. Um, well, playing into that, I, I have a, I guess this is my good then, um, something that's kind of similar. It's, it's wrestling related and, and from the same general time period, which is, and this is not a specific incident, but it's something that kind of happened throughout the course of, you know, many months, many years. Uh, but the ECW era, Paul Heyman versus Vince McMahon animosity, was something that I bought into completely for many, many years. You know, Paul Heyman would show up on ECW TV and just like cut promos on Vince, on WWF, just talk shit about him. And it seemed very real. And then, you know, every once in a while, WWF would scoop up an ECW wrestler, you know, somebody like Mick Foley or or something like that. And I'd be super pissed, like, what the fuck? You know, these big guys with big pockets, you know, are, are scooping up, you know, my favorite guys from the smaller company, fuck this. And I didn't know until much later that Paul Heyman was actually on Vince McMahon's payroll during those ECW years. And that the, uh, you know, the talent exchanges were coordinated, that they were in real life friendly with one another. Um, and, you know, obviously now they've been in business together publicly for many years, but at the time it seemed so real that it would have like shook me to my core. If you had told me that Paul Heyman was cashing checks that Vince McMahon signed, I think I would have punched you in the face. (laughs) Yeah, that, um, that was a little before my time uh, in terms of watching wrestling. Like I got into, I mean, after like being fully submerged again, because of that Mike Tyson thing, like I got into ECW, like not too long after, but yeah, I think some of this stuff, like the times that like ECW invaded raw and like, the stuff with Jerry Lawler, like hating them. I, I only watched that stuff like years and years later, but uh, yeah, I definitely 
when I found that out too, I was definitely surprised. Uh, but I mean, I'm I'm glad to hear that Vince McMahon was, you know, kind of paying for a little bit of ECW because, like, he was, like you said, just stealing it all. So I'm I'm glad he kind of paid for some of it. Yeah, and you know, this is before they had their own kind of developmental territories. You know, before NXT, before Ohio Valley, all this stuff. So like for them, they're like, hey. Yeah, you you can run this minor league for us, Paul, and and we've got the pocketbook that will, when your guys get good enough, we we know how to pay them. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, I think it worked to everyone's advantage. Also, for the wrestlers to have a place to you know graduate to and and make more money, it's good for them as well. But yeah, it it seemed so real this animosity. Yeah, and I mean, part of that, I mean, you know, going back to watch it is. Jerry Lawler, like, and I mean, maybe he actually had some animosity or something, but like, yeah, him, like him feuding with like Taz and Tommy Dreamer and stuff, like, seemed very, very real. I could see him maybe hating Paul Heyman. I'm, I'm not sure. Did their paths cross at all before? Like when Heyman was in his Pauly dangerously mode, did they cross paths in in Atlanta or anything? I'm not sure, but. It, it does seem like the, the thing where Paul Heyman is the kind of guy that Lawler would hate, probably. <laughs> that's probably true, yeah. Um, okay, so that's your good? That's my good, which is very meaningful that I've classified it as good. Okay. Um, my bad is something that we actually talked a little bit about last week, so I won't belabor it, but it's the movie Bad Trip which is the Eric Andre movie where he kind of like does like Borat type stuff. He's on a road trip and he plays pranks on uh, members of the public while on it. And it's a, it's something where it's like, if it's, if it's actually real, then they needed to go back to the drawing board. And if there's a lot more fakeness in it, then, then you might expect like more actors and stuff. Then they need to take it back to the drawing board because it, wasn't funny like a lot of the stunts and stuff just like like a lot of the pranks would be like okay here's somebody threatening violence on on people who don't know they're in a movie like an actor threatening violence on people who don't know they're in a movie and it's like that isn't fun like that imbalance of power you know like when the jackass guys do stuff like that they're doing it to like Wee man or something so they're kind of punching sideways sort of you know (laughs) You can't really say punching up when it comes to Wee Man. <laughs> yeah, or like they're, you know, scaring Bam with snakes or something. So they're doing it to each other. To whereas like if they were scaring, you know, people on the street with snakes, maybe not as funny. Um, so like, yeah, it just seems like they're kind of, a lot of the pranks in this Eric Andre movie seem like they're bullying people for no reason. It's like that imbalance of power isn't very funny. And then another prank in it, that they do is like, and it's been a while since I've seen this movie. So maybe I'm misremembering, but I remember like they do a fake like car wreck and Eric Andre, like seems like he's very hurt seriously in this car wreck and like members, like unsuspecting people are like, they're reacting to it, but like their reaction is to get him help and to see if he's okay. And that's not funny. Like that's not a good prank to get like nice reactions out of people. Like I don't understand where the joke is there. So, so like I said, like if that's, if that's real, then you need to go back to the drawing board and find a funnier prank because people helping you is not a very good joke. And if it's fake, then you got to take that back to the drawing board because if you script it out 
the fact that people are helping Eric Andre because they think he's hurt, then it's not a joke. So I hate everything about this movie. <laughs> I think they just get the jackass Borat, like bad grandpa dichotomy completely wrong in every way. I like the Eric Andre show. I mean, I haven't seen all of it, uh, but I've seen a good amount of it and I've enjoyed all, you know, pretty much everything that I've seen. Um, as I mentioned before, I only saw like the first few minutes of this movie and figured this was probably not for me. I do think that there is a, there is a place for like public pranks of strangers, but as you say, like you have to be punching up. And, and so like what I'm thinking of is like you watch something like the original Tom Green show, you know, the clips that were filmed in Canada pre MTV where he's got like poop on a microphone and he's going around to strangers in public and in- interviewing them. It works because he is at such a low position himself. He's on a public access show in Canada. You can tell this guy has no resources and he's a buffoon versus Mm -hmm. if he had tried to do the same thing like now and have, you know, a Netflix pay for it or something, it would feel incredibly crass because it would be like, well, here's a guy who lives in the Hollywood Hills. He's got a mansion. He's got all this money. And a big company is sponsoring him pranking people in public. But if it's like, you know, if you're coming from nothing, if you're having a yard sale in Denton, Texas or whatever, and you want to be a price master, (laughs) I I think it's funny, you know, but it it has to come from that kind of grassroots place where it's it's not coming from a big corporate backed, uh, you know, entertainer. Yeah. And and I was thinking of like times that Jackass has done similar things to to see why Jackass is good and Eric Andre isn't. But like, like there's one, there's one sketch in one of the Jackass movies where like Bam and Johnny Knoxville are like in the roof of like an office building. And then they crash through the roof while people are working and they're like, Oh my God, grab the diamonds. We got to get out of here. But they're like writhing on the floor in pain because they just crashed through a, a building, you know? So like yeah, the, the people around them, don't necessarily feel like they're in danger from these bank robbers because they're on the floor in pain. Like they, they're the ones with the power in the situation. It's just a weird situation. Yeah, totally. I think that's the difference. Yeah. And the, the willingness for these guys to make themselves, you know, as much of a victim as the people being pranked, you know, puts them at that low status where it, it then works and is funny. Mm-hmm. So that's my bad. Uh, what is your bad? Well, my bad is is something that I honestly I wouldn't really classify it as bad, which is Crispin Glover nearly kicks Letterman on July twenty eighth, nineteen eighty seven, an episode of the David Letterman program. Um, he was, I don't think he was actually promoting Reuben and Ed, but I think he was working on that movie Reuben and Ed that would come out a few years later at the time, and basically appeared on the show in character. Uh, but that was not really made clear to the audience, and I'm not sure whether or not it was made clear to Letterman. Uh, but effectively, Crispin shows up kind of in character, rambles, doesn't make a whole lot of sense in his interview, and then at one point says, oh, I'm strong, I know how to wrestle, I know how to kick. And then he goes over to Dave's desk and does like a roundhouse kick that nearly catches Dave on on the face, uh, nearly had a Charlotte Flair nose scenario on, on old Dave there. Um, and then they pretty quickly cut to commercial break. Like Dave walks away from the desk and he's like, I, I don't want to deal with this. And this is something that I, I didn't see live, of course. Um, you know, I, I was only probably four years old when this aired live, 
but it's a clip that got around. And I think even pre-internet, I feel like I saw this in some sort of like a Letterman clip show in the 90s. They were revisiting, you know, moments from the show. Or maybe it was even one of those like craziest moments in TV history kind of like compilation shows that I feel like we used to get. Anyhow, I don't think it was all the way until YouTube when I first saw this, but but who knows? Whenever I did see this, I was like, what the hell is this? Like Crispin Glover's out of his mind. Um, you know, I, I totally bought into him just being unhinged. And, and I thought like, well, this guy needs some help. I, I hope he got some help after this. And I think that kind of the the story around it was always, I had heard that he had been like banned from Letterman forever for this. But if you look it up, actually, no, he, he reappeared on Letterman and a few years later in 1990 and again in 1992. And I, I don't know if they even mentioned um, that incident. I, I'm sure they must have mentioned the incident uh, in the subsequent interviews, but it, it didn't seem to be a such an offense to Letterman. And as I get older, I, I feel like I feel like Letterman was probably in on this. I mean, he liked to book these sort of wild card guests as we'll talk about later with Andy Kaufman. I mean, he was in on that. Um, you know, he's had people like um, Joaquin Phoenix or Harmony Kareen come on and do pretty, you know, weird kind of things that I feel like he was probably in on. And this is the kind of humor that he likes. But um, do you know this clip? Do you remember this clip where Crispin Glover nearly uh, kicks off Letterman's head? I've heard of this, but I don't know that I've ever actually watched it, but like, I, it, yeah, growing up, like it was always like a mythical thing. Like, did you hear about this? Did you see this? And yeah, I always heard the thing about him being banned too, but I don't know if I've ever actually gone back and watched it. You should watch it. Um, famous Dave Letterman archivist, Don Giller has it on his channel, um, on YouTube, along with his other two, uh, Letterman appearances. But yeah, it, it's, you know, it's one of those moments where I guess we still don't know for sure, I mean, we know that Crispin was in character, it seems like, based on the fact that this movie came out a couple of years later and featured a character that acted exactly like this. But but who knows? I, I don't think that he's ever spoke on it publicly, and, and I don't think Letterman has either. So maybe we may never know. I see. Yeah, it seems like, uh, yeah, uh, it seems like the kind of thing that would have come out in, in years, uh, in the years since, like because Joaquin Phoenix did like a similar thing and it came out like almost immediately that he was just joking and like doing a bit. Um, so yeah, it's, yeah, it seems odd that no one's ever done an interview. I mean, I guess both of those guys are like weird and reclusive enough that maybe it makes sense that they wouldn't have done that. They wouldn't spill the beans, I suppose. Yeah. Maybe we need to get our man on the inside, Jackson Stewart to ask old Crispin. Mm -hmm. What's going on, dude? Was that legit? Yeah. Uh, well, something that was not legit is my ugly, uh, and this is also something I've I've talked about um, before. But uh, a few years ago, a clip hit the internet where, like, a little a little pig, I believe. Um, I actually just watched this episode, so I should remember this, but I'm senile now. But like, a little pig saved a goat, I believe, from drowning in like a little lake. You know, That's like, like a goat. sexual euphemism, right? <laughs> <laughs> this little animal is drowning in a little lake and this other animal jumps in, grabs it, pulls it to safety. And it was like a viral video showing the compassion of animals. And I 
I saw it and I said, holy shit, if this is a real ass thing, then I cannot eat animals anymore. Like I, how can you morally come to the decision that like to, to eat an animal that has the wherewithal to understand a situation and to save another animal from dying? Like, I just can't do it anymore. This is crazy. I can't like, I, this is wrong to do. And I can't, you know, and it was like something I wrestled with and I was like, you know, but I really like animals. I like eating them. So I don't, so I, like I was torn mm-hmm. still, but it was something I wrestled with for, for like, I feel like weeks, you know? And then it came out that this is, it was a prank for something called the Nathan for you television show. What the fuck? And it was not real. And so then I said, Oh my God, this motherfucker just put my whole moral compass in jeopardy. Um, put, put my pizza eating, my meat lovers pizza eating in jeopardy as well. And I'm never going to watch his show. I hate him. Son of a and, bitch. <laughs> which of course now I love him and I love the show and I love this episode, but, but yeah, but this was something I thought was real and it really was like, was kind of affecting me. And then so to find out it was just like a, a deeply elaborate prank, like one of the more elaborate pranks of all time. So elaborate, in fact, that Nathan Fielder threatened to push a man off of like a subway train platform to kill him to keep the secret because it's a very good episode. Um, but yeah, so I don't know. It, it's, very, it's an ugly for me. This is That's why it's ugly. It's like, it's a good thing, but... Uh, but I don't know, it tore me up, tore up my mental, my my morals for a while. So, uh, how do you feel about this? Did you see the thing before you saw the episode, or or how did this hit you? I don't think that I saw the thing before I saw the episode, but but I feel like I have seen similar things on the internet that that maybe some of them might have been fake. Who knows? But I mean, if if you want to get into the morality of of eating meat, I mean it almost certainly is immoral, right? I mean, like I I have a hard time (laughs) and I'm like the biggest meat eater in the world. That's pretty much all I eat is meat. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's, it's fucked up when you really think about it. So I try to compartmentalize it, not think about it too much, uh, not introduce these, you know, dangerous thoughts into my mind that, yeah, maybe these creatures are smarter than we think or have, you know, more feelings than we think, because I think that we do find that out on a fairly regular basis, you know, they're like, Oh, turns out dogs know simple algebra or what? Like there's always news stories about, Oh, <laughs> pigs could pass the driving test. If, if only they had long enough legs, you know, it's, it's all this kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. I heard this anecdote one time and actually I should have asked the, the dairy people that I was with, with the Congressman the other day, if this is true, now I'm kicking myself, but I, I heard this anecdote that, uh, like the feeding troughs for cows, like when you start it up and like all the, the feed starts going to the trough and they come over and they start eating it, that you have to turn it off at a certain point because if you don't, the cow will keep eating even if its head is becoming submerged in food and it will yeah, just drown. Yeah, pie. <laughs> and that makes, that was the thing that is the opposite of this Nathan Fielder clip where I was like, well, if a cow is that stupid, I'm doing it a favor. <laughs> Yeah. I don't know if it's true. I think cows may have been engineered to be that stupid. You know what I mean? Like we, we've bred <laughs> yeah. them to be so docile that, uh, yeah, at, at this point it is, you know, I think we are doing them a favor to eat them, but 
There may be other beasts that we may want to reconsider. Mostly the pig, I guess. They seem pretty yeah. smart. Yeah, pigs and gorillas. Oh. Not going to eat any of those. Well, gorillas taste bad anyways, so. <laughs> That's probably true. Uh, but what is your ugly? Uh, my ugly is just kind of in general, this is not a, a specific moment, but I remember, you know, the show Space Ghost Coast to Coast debuting on Cartoon Network, and I was I was in on the show from pretty much the get-go, um, and I, I just remember it being really kind of mind-blowing to me in, in, you know, circa 1994 or so, you know, that there was this show, and, and I, I, you know, I didn't know any of the original Alex Toth, you know, uh, cartoons or comics or anything like that. But I did love this combination of these old-timey character designs and this aggressively weird sense of humor. And I know that this is going to sound like really dumb, but but I'll you know I'll just say it because I mean I was like twelve years old at the time. But I kind of took it at face value watching this show that these guests were actually in some sort of a situation where they were like talking to a cartoon. You know what I mean? Like like that they had maybe a video screen that they were looking at that they could see into Space Ghost's studio, that Space Ghost was there, looking back at them, an animated character, and talking with them. Obviously, you yeah. know, that's. I, I think that you can, you can actually do that now. I think that there are, like, live stream guys that are, like, you know, self-animating themselves as ducks or whatever, and it's, like, a real-time mm-hmm. animation. But in 1994, I'm sure it was just some writer sitting, you know, off-camera chatting with these guys, and they would just edit it together you know what i mean yeah that's something i always wondered about with space ghost is yeah i mean it it seems so seamless that it does seem like maybe you know conan o'brien is actually talking to space ghost and then actually getting into an argument with zorak but yeah i feel like it must have just been like yeah some intern asking like them like a hundred just normal ass questions and then them editing it into something funny like it would be really interesting to yeah, to watch how they make that show. Like, because to this day, I still have no clue. Yeah, I would love to see some kind of, you know, if not a full documentary, even just give me like a, a few behind the scenes clips or even a photograph. I would love to know, like, what did that studio look like that that Hulk Hogan sat down in to chat with, you know, Zorak and, and Brack and Space Ghost and Moltar? Um, what was that experience like? Yeah. And, and was it just a, a huge long laundry list of normal ask questions or did they pre-write this stuff and try and get performances out of these guys to match what they have written? Probably not, I guess, because it is so kind of absurd and surreal. A lot of it, you know, like they'll just cut to Hogan, just kind of silently blinking at camera or whatever that those are always my favorite moments when you get the reaction from the guest where they don't even say anything. They just give a look, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, it was, it was mystifying to me as a child. I guess I'm still kind of mystified. Um, but I know now that it, you know, Hulk Hogan didn't really walk away from that interview, like pissed and confused at space ghost, you know, as it seemed he did on the show. I'm, I'm sure that <laughs> these people knew that there was a, a show being made or whatever, but still real to me. Damn it. It is still real to me. Well, that wraps it up for this good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, so I guess the only thing left to discover is, are these voicemails still real? Yeah. These guys. And how good or bad or ugly are they? Mm-hmm. Well, let's find out. Here is the first one. Hey, guys. Uh, yeah. Enjoying the new uh, podcast, fucking uh, styles. 
All good. This is Tom, by the way. Uh, yeah, um, basically hoping everything's going well and thinking, you know, if you're looking for a single film to do, I'm going to keep doubling down and saying, God damn it, do Extreme Prejudice. I think you'll oh. really, really like it. Okay, uh, yeah, rock and roll, man. Have a good one, guys. Cheers. Bye. Thank you, Tom. Uh, yeah, extreme Prejudice seems like... It's yeah. like everybody's hankering for it. It seems like we're extremely prejudiced against it. <laughs> that is true. Um, we'll do it one day. We'll do it one day. This was the, was it, it's a Walter Hill? Is that right? I think, I believe so. I believe it's a Walter Hill. I like that guy. You gotta like that guy, man. Yeah. It's King of the Hill. Yeah. Face that show uh, on him. Speaking of Kings of the Hill, here's another caller. Hi, it's uh, Robert from Sweden. Uh, just uh, chipping in on the topic of finding random porn in the woods. Oh. You, if uh, anyone wondered uh, how that porn got there in the first place, I have at least one answer. A childhood friend of mine, he developed a rather serious uh, drinking problem in his uh, 20s. And uh, one of the least uh, uh, problematic things he would do when he was drunk was when he wasn't, like, crashing his car or shooting heroin in a public toilet. He he would go online and uh, order DVDs of the most vile, disgusting, and depraved uh, German scat porn. And, of course, uh, when it arrived, he had sobered up and uh, it was too ashamed to even open it. So <laughs> he naturally went into the woods and dumped it. And uh, I like to think that uh, it made some 15-year-old very happy. It's the, the circle of porn, people. It's quite beautiful when you think about it. Well, that's all. Thanks. Um, keep it up. And um, Neil Breen did nothing wrong. <laughs> That I'm I'm getting that tattooed right across my chest. Neil Green <laughs> did nothing wrong. You do gotta wonder if a uh, if a Scheiser film is dumped in the woods and there's nobody there to see it, does it still make a noise? <laughs> it's still gross, even if nobody's watching it. I think. Yeah. Um, it's like Schroding Schrodinger's Scheiser. <laughs> <laughs> in one reality, it's still gross, and in the other, it's not. I got to say though I'm I'm glad that you know the uh the pornos that I ran across in, in the woods as a as a wee lad were much more vanilla, you know. We had some penthouses, you know, maybe a hustler. Nothing too gnarly. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty glad I didn't run into to poop porn as a kid cuz like cuz when you're a kid like, you know, when you're like 15, like you can like whack off to like anything, you know? Like you're looking at <laughs> You know, like just the most tame, like uh, the Kmart catalog and stuff like this, the swimsuit section in there, stuff like that, like very oh, tame yeah. stuff. So like Jules Asner from the E-Network is doing a, a travel show, you know, and you're like, well, hey, Jules Asner doesn't 100%. have to be wearing a bikini. <laughs> so, yeah, so I would have still had to whack off to this poop porn, but like trying to like look around the poop and stuff like that. So like I would probably have like weird fetishes now if that would have happened to me. So I'm glad it didn't. 
Yeah. And maybe it explains something about the state of the Swedish people these days, right? <laughs> maybe. Maybe Deal, so. Dealing with a whole generation of Swedes that were exposed to Scheiser porn in the, in the woods as children. So I can't blame them if, you know, they're burning down churches and eating each other's guts in their black metal bands or whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, well, that's all the voicemails this week. So I think now we've come to the point where we take a break before talking about Andy Kaufman. Is that right? I think so. But uh, what kind of dog you got, bro? Yeah, he's mad. He's a little gonzo. He gets mad at everything over there. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, he's, he's a part of the show now. There's no Kevin, but we, you know, <laughs> we're, we'll invite Gonzo on more often, I guess, to make up for it. He'll be on the show each and every time somebody walks by the window that he can get mad at. <laughs> on that note, we will take a very quick break, and then we'll be coming back to talk about I'm from Hollywood, so stick around. They have a lot of excitement at the Mid-South Coliseum tonight. And the match that generated the most interest pitted Jerry Lawler against TV personality Andy Kaufman. And here's what happened in that match. Now, Kaufman has a headlock on Lawler, but Lawler turns it into a suplex, and Kaufman winds up on the deck. He is hurt, but Lawler is not finished. Watch what is about to happen. Now, Kaufman is going to win this match. He's the winner right there, imagine. Okay, so Lawler is going to put <laughs> is going to put a pile driver on. This is so illegal. And there's Jerry Calhoun trying to say, no, Jerry, don't do that. Don't do it. This is a pile driver, Mason, right here. And now watch. You think that doesn't hurt? Lawler put a couple of more on it before it was over. They, took a, they brought an ambulance into the Coliseum. They put Kaufman into the ambulance. And away they go. Taking uh, Andy Kaufman to the hospital. He is there right now as the ambulance pulls out of the Coliseum. Kaufman is in the intensive care unit at St. Francis Hospital. He has had a battery of tests, and it is believed that he is not seriously injured. He'll be in the hospital at least overnight. But one thing for sure, according to his manager, Andy Kaufman's wrestling career is over. All right, welcome back to Junk Food Supper. Uh, the only movie that we'll be talking about on the show this week is I'm From Hollywood. This is a 1989 semi-documentary uh, directed by Lynn Margulies and Joe Orr. Uh, something that I'm very excited to bring to uh, bring to the show. This is my dance adjacent pick for the show, uh, inspired by Breaking Two, and it was something that was a huge part of my own childhood. You know, this was something that played on Comedy Central quite a lot. I feel like in the mid '90s to late '90s. Is that where you caught it originally? Yeah, it was shown like all the time on Comedy Central. That's that's where I saw it. It feels like it was one of the few things that they had rights to early on, and so they would just air this over and over again. And it appealed to my interest. I think that I knew, I think that I knew of Andy Kaufman just through Taxi, which was a show that I would catch rarely, but occasionally. I, I had seen a little bit of Taxi, I believe, and I think I had seen him through like SNL best of videotapes and stuff like that. So I, I knew of this guy as a comedian. Didn't know about his his whole wrestling thing uh, until I saw this documentary on Comedy Central. But me and my buddies. Uh, this guy, Ron Staples, and this other guy, Jim Brooks, who I was friends with at the time, we would watch this thing over and over again. We were obsessed with pro wrestling at the time, and we even invented this game that we would play, which was like a Dungeons & Dragons style, like, dice game. 
where we would role play pro wrestlers and, you know, you'd roll the dice to see if you got a, a scoop slam or a drop kick and, and all this stuff. But we were in it and, and we all, all three of us became obsessed with this and we would catch it anytime it was on Comedy Central. And I would become obsessed with Andy Kaufman um, as a result of it. But let me uh, break down the, the basic gist of this, I guess. You know, I, I feel like most people out there who are listening to this have probably seen I'm From Hollywood or have at least seen Man on the Moon, the Andy Kaufman biopic that Milos Forman did probably in, what, the late 90s, uh, that covers most of this. Um, but just in case you haven't, uh, this is a comedic semi-documentary about Andy's involvement in the world of pro wrestling down in Memphis in the early 1980s. Uh, this is after he had established himself as a nationally known comedian on SNL and Taxi, although I don't think he was really a household name in Memphis or anything like that at the time. Uh, but he was a lifelong fan of wrestling. You know, he actually, before getting involved in Memphis, he had originally contacted Vince McMahon Sr. Uh, about bringing, uh, you know, his act to the New York wrestling territory. Because even before his involvement in Memphis, he would do this thing in his stand-up routines where he would wrestle women from the audience and generate a, a ton of heel heat, you know, doing that. And so he thought he could bring it to WWF. Uh, Vince Sr. said no. Uh, he didn't want to bring show business into his pro wrestling uh, world. And so eventually, Andy was ironic. able... Yeah, Very ironic. ironic. Yeah, considering where it would turn. And I mean, you do have to think if Andy had lived longer, he probably would have been in the first WrestleMania, I'm guessing. You know, like that yeah. seems like the perfect venue for the guy. Um, but anyhow, didn't work out with Vince. And so eventually, um, the... Wrestling writer slash photographer Bill Apter, um, who was friends with Andy, uh, would call uh, Jerry Lawler down in Memphis and say, hey, you should meet this guy, Andy Kaufman. I, th I think he might work for you down there. And it they ended up working together. And, you know, Andy seized the opportunity and showed up uh, to the Mid-South Coliseum playing a version of himself uh, who hated Southerners, yelled at everybody for being filthy rednecks, and, and again, just generated a ton of heat. Uh, he would wrestle women from the audience, much like he did in his stand-up routines, uh, for, I think, just one uh, episode or, or one taping of a TV show down there. He, he did the, the lady wrestling thing, but pretty quickly was challenged by Jerry Lawler uh, to a match that developed a feud that would famously carry over onto the David Letterman show, uh, you know, with their appearance in 82, where Lawler famously slaps Andy on the show, a, a moment that people thought, was legit at the time, um, but we would find out much later that it, it was not. And this documentary tracks that feud, you know, as well as some interviews where we get reactions from some of Andy's famous friends. And these interviews, I would say, are kind of a mixed bag, to be honest. Um, I think I liked them maybe more at the time when I was a kid watching this, but rewatching it this week for the show, I thought those were maybe my least favorite parts, the parts with Mary Lou Henner or Tony Danza or especially Robin Williams, who I think is not as funny in this as maybe he thinks he is. Uh, what I thought were better were the clips from Bob Zamuda, um, who is credited initially in this as the president of Comic Relief, which, which he was, uh, but he's not credited as Andy's writer slash manager, which he also was. Um, and it's kind of funny that later on in the documentary, he shows up as Andy's lawyer in one of the, the wrestling angles, and they credit him as Bob Zamuda, but they don't tie it to him being the president of Comic Relief or Andy's writer slash manager. 
Uh, I think even later in this, he shows up in a different angle as Andy's best friend. Uh, again, not really explained, but all of the stuff with Zamuda I thought was very fun. Um, anyhow, eventually it was revealed um, that all of this was staged, not within the course of this documentary, but many years later. I guess it was in 1995, uh, more than 10 years after Kaufman died, that NBC aired a show called A Comedy Salute to Andy Kaufman, uh, in which Jim Carrey, of all people, uh, is the one that reveals that this wrestling stuff was, in fact, staged, including the Letterman appearance, um, which I guess you know is four years before he would even uh, get involved with Men on the Moon. So it's kind of funny that Jim Carrey is the guy. Um, yeah, that's kind of the basic gist of this. Um, I do have some cagematch.net statistics for Andy Kaufman. Um, we can just go through them real quick. The guy, Andy Kaufman, wrestled 11 matches in total, all in CWA, um, Memphis and Kentucky. One match in 1981, one match in 1982, nine matches in 1983. Do you want to guess his win-loss ratio, Bowman? Of his um, 11 matches? I feel like he's... A, well, I, I know he won one by disqualification. Yeah. At least one. So I would get... Out of 11, I would guess maybe... And it seems like he won that one with Jimmy Hart, where he betrayed Jerry Lawler. So I'm going to go two and nine. He went eight and three. Oh, my goodness. All right. That's a 73% win ratio. So... I mean, that's that's pretty good. I mean, I, I haven't looked at, you know, your Bob Backlands of the world, but it, this probably stacks up pr- pretty well against most competitors. Yeah. Um, and what a great way to, like, an, a great extra way to make people hate him is if he's coming in and actually winning these matches in some way. Yeah, yeah, which, I mean, I, I guess on that first one where, like, it looks like Lawler, quote-unquote, breaks his neck and he wins by DQ, the crowd is still happy that, you know, I, I think in that case, the crowd doesn't care that that Andy technically won. They're just satisfied yeah. seeing him, uh, you know, get stretchered out of there. But I think certainly later on, when you get Jimmy Hart involved, and there's a lot more swerves of of them actually kind of winning matches, but through dubious means. You know, that's certainly incensing the fans. But I don't know to be honest, because outside of the footage in this documentary you can't really get your hands on these matches too easily. I mean, I think that you can find a limited number of them in like, you know, 15th generation VHS dupes here and there kind of clipped out on YouTube. But I don't even think you can find all of them that way. And certainly you can't find any of it in any kind of good quality. Um, You know, unfortunately, you know, it's just not out there. And it's a bummer because, you know, there's that cool territories section on the WWE uh, app inside of Peacock. And this is not one of the territories that they've chronicled, unfortunately, because I I would love to just watch all these matches from start to finish. Yeah, me too. And I mean, if, if they have the footage for this documentary, then I'm sure somebody probably has footage of all the matches somewhere hidden away. Um, Cause I mean, I can't imagine they were televised I mean, maybe they were, but oh, I think they were. Yeah. I think that they oh, okay. all, well, most of them. Yeah. I think that they were televised as part of oh. the CWA okay. um, program. Yeah. Then um, I'm sure. Yeah. Somebody's definitely sitting on them somewhere. 
Yeah, I hope so. I mean, they certainly were in, in 1989 or whatever when they made this. They got access to nice, clean-looking copies of these matches. But hopefully those tapes are still out there, and, and I would love to see them someday. Um, I should also maybe explain, speaking of, of tapes, um, this week for the show, we watched the unedited version of I'm From Hollywood, something that I'm sad to say is, is again, not commercially available. If you want the unedited version of this, I guess you have to just send me a message on Discord or something, and I'll send it to you. Uh, but effectively, what happened here was we were planning to do this. You know, I, I had forgotten that I own this already on DVD, so I grabbed a quick uh, VHS rip copy of it from archive.org, and I was getting ready to watch that, and then I realized, oh, I got the DVD. Let me just rip my DVD instead. And I was looking at the run times, and I'm like, wait a minute. Why is my DVD version of this documentary like 10 minutes shorter than uh, the VHS rip. And so I, I pulled them both into Final Cut and I was going through it trying to figure out what the differences were. It turned out that some of it was just that certain segments got repeated on the VHS thing. And I don't know if that it was intentional. It kind of looked like a mistake in the editing, but there were in fact a few moments, I think it's about four different little clips that uh, total up to about two and a half minutes that aren't present at all on the DVD that were just kind of edited out of the original version of this didn't make it to DVD. They're not huge moments, I guess. I'm, I do think that they're kind of important and worth seeing. Um, the only footage of Andy's real life manager, George Shapiro, uh, is in this um, unedited version. So it's kind of cool to see him talking about how he's you know, worried about Andy and thinks that the the wrestling career is a mistake or whatever. And then there's also a clip, maybe the most interesting part of the unedited, unedited cut is that um, there's a clip where Andy kind of breaks kayfabe and he talks about, you know, his concept for this character. And, and basically, you know, if I'm going to play a character, I'm going to play it, uh, you know, to the nines. And, you know, this is an evil character and I'm going to try and be as evil as possible with this character. And, and I thought that was interesting to see that in this. I get why they cut it, I guess. But I also wasn't sure, had I ever seen these clips before? Like, what? Ver I wonder, what version aired on Comedy Central when, when I was young? Did this stuff with George Shapiro or uh, any of those clips where, you know, obviously the, the video quality kind of degrades to match the, the VHS quality? Um, did those clips stand out as being new to you or, or did you remember them? Yeah, no, I definitely did not remember them. I feel like, yeah, I definitely would have remembered uh, Andy Kaufman breaking character. Um, and I would have been like, it's a hoax. <laughs> and I would have flipped my table over. Um, it, it's weird though, right? Because I feel like this is one of those things where like the main thing people say about this feud is that everybody thought it was real. Yeah. But if you watch the original cut of this, it's pretty obvious that it's not. And I think that just removing that one minute of footage where he's talking about his character goes a long way to make this feel real. So it's, yeah, it's very strange to me. Yeah. I think there's only like a few moments in this where I feel like, okay, this is show business and that's obviously that part. And then all of Robin Williams stuff. Cause he's making jokes. Like he knows yeah. that Andy like knows like he's he talks about like the last time he saw Andy Kaufman before he died he got him in a headlock and it's like he's making obvious jokes and so 
that's kind of whatever. Um, and then the part where Andy is making the video and he has that large woman in his backyard that he wrestles. And it's like, he's just going bananas. Like he's like slamming her head into the concrete. And then Bob Zamuda is like trying to shut off the camera. And he's like, we can't do this. We can, you know, we got to cut the cameras. Like all that's a little, a little too much, but, but at the same time, like maybe not, I don't know. <laughs> maybe you're just selling Andy Kaufman being like a horrible piece of crap. So, but those are the only two times where it even approaches like, hmm, I don't know about this. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that um, the part where he's attacking the large woman was, I don't know, the, the kind of thing that would have fooled me as a kid. I think it did fool yeah. me as a kid when I watched this. Maybe it's a, a little bit less believable as an adult. And especially as you've seen more wrestling over the years and people doing these kind of angles, you know, like the Mike Tyson, Steve Austin one, where it's like, cut the camera, you know, this is things are getting too real. That was probably kind of unique at the time, 1981, 82, whatever. Yeah, um, that's true. So people might have bought into it more back then. Plus, people were just dumb back then, you know? That's true. I mean, I guess maybe it just it sort of seems unrealistic just because, like, it's attempted murder, you know? Like, maybe it's a little <laughs> too, like, too much. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Um, I did want to talk about Lynn Margulies real quick. So Lynn Margulies, co-director of this, was the girlfriend of Andy and also the younger sister of the legendary Johnny Legend, um, who... I guess she had met Andy when Johnny was directing My Breakfast with Blassie, but she was a lifelong wrestling fan. She was um, neighbors with Tor Johnson, of all people, and uh, grew up as, uh, in her childhood, was friends with Fred Blassie, um, and just had wrestling well, in her life the whole time. Tor Johnson, star of Breaking 2, oddly enough. Is that right? Well, there's that guy who... Dances oh, with, with the, the torch on the mask. mask. That's yeah. right. I was like, I don't remember. Was he even alive <laughs> at that point? I don't know. But um, yeah, so, so she, you know, she loved wrestling. She met Andy. Basically, there's a scene, if you watch uh, Breakfast with Blassie, uh, where Andy is awkwardly flirting with a girl at the restaurant. And that's Lynn. Um, she tells him in the movie that she's married to an inmate in Sing Sing. And then when she walks away, Kaufman whispers to Blassie, Oh, I'm terrible with names. And he says back to, to Andy, well, just remember, she's the one with the legs. Um, and I guess that was their very first meeting was, was on screen. They didn't even meet before the shoot or anything. They met for the very first time on camera. And then that, you know, spawned a relationship that would last until uh, Andy's death in, in 1984. Uh, but shortly after that meeting, they would start work on this documentary together. Uh, and they originally planned this to be a bit more of like a spoof uh, than it ended up being. Um, Margulies was going to be in it playing a filmmaker that is tracking down a reclusive Andy Kaufman. And in an interview that I found with her on slamwrestling.net, she says, I finally find Andy and he's living in this slovenly hole in the tenderloin in San Francisco because his career is totally on the skids and he's gone nuts. Uh, so I'm from Hollywood was going to be wrapped around him telling the story of what happened in Memphis. And then the end shot was going to be what he really wanted was a helicopter shot where he's standing out in the middle of the tenderloin screaming, I am not insane. And we pull back and he's standing on the streets of Hollywood screaming. Uh, that was the original intention. Um, he would die of course, before they could shoot that. Uh, but she did keep her promise to finish the film without him. Uh, because he made it clear to to her how important this was to him. 
Um, another interesting fact, though, about Lynn Margulies, she does have very limited credits on IMDb, but her first one is pretty wild. At age 20, she provided the narration for a movie that her brother Johnny Legend made, uh, which was called Young, Hot, and Nasty Teenage Cruisers, which was a 1977 rockabilly-themed porno that I want to see. I've never seen it, but I I will eventually. Um, Mm. I don't have any fun facts about the other co-director, Joe Orr, but I'm guessing that Freddie Blassie liked his legs too. I don't know. I haven't haven't seen them. They're probably pretty good legs. Um, (laughs) But one reason that I love this documentary, you know, uh, beyond just kind of the nostalgia for my own childhood is it gives you this window into the territorial days of wrestling, you know, before things were consolidated by the McMahons. And growing up at the time that we did, I feel like we missed out on these territorial days of wrestling, you know, and, and I always would see little hints of it here and there. You'd see photographs in a pro wrestling illustrated magazine, or, you know, maybe you'd see a little documentary clip here or there. And it always, like, I kind of romanticized those days. They always seemed so cool to me. And there just wasn't a lot of ways to see those times and places, you know, on film. And so this documentary was one of my only ways to get to see those, you know, kind of regional uh, arenas, you know, to, to hear these very specific regional accents from these announcers, you know, and enjoy things like, these minimal costumes that they would have back in the day, you know, like it strikes me as kind of weird how casually dressed Jerry Lawler is for some of this stuff. Like his first confrontation with Kaufman, he's wearing jeans and a floppy looking t-shirt. It's, and it's like, this guy is supposed to be your big local champion, you know, King can't even afford a robe or nothing. Um, But it, you know, it was a scrappier time in wrestling and, it's also a time in wrestling when the news would cover the results of pro wrestling, which is really fun. You get to see that mm-hmm. in this documentary. They'll cut once in a while to like a local news report where the the news anchor is taking it at least semi seriously. Like you can tell he's kind of he's kind of slyly grinning that he you know at the fact that he has to report on pro wrestling results, but he, he seems to be enjoying it at the same time. And this documentary also features the talents of one Lance Russell. Uh, the the broadcaster Lance Russell for Memphis Wrestling, who I I fell in love with as like a fourteen year old kid watching this. I just thought he was like the coolest broadcaster. Thought he had this professional kind of style to him that that I really loved. And I I would even do some tape trading as a teenager, trying to get my hands on Memphis tapes, just hoping that he would be on them. And, and sometimes I'd you know I would luck out and I'd get some Lance Russell commentary. Um, you know, and, and I was thrilled to hear him. And, you know, it, it was good that I was mostly just trying to hear the guy because the, the pixel quality on those tapes I was trading for were pretty garbage back then. Also in this are some great crowds. You know, I, I think if you are making a compilation of the best audience reaction shots in wrestling history, probably all your shots would just come from this documentary. You don't even really need to look anywhere else because this has got everything you need. It's got all these old ass rednecks, you know, these toothless trucker capped women and you know the occasional young drunk good old boy who are alternately having the times of their lives and or being incensed beyond their imaginations and it's so fun to see these wild reactions from these people um and i think their dedication can be summed up in a quote that lawler says about wrestling himself at one point in this he says 
I take wrestling very seriously. It's a very serious sport to me. And there's like this really weird, awkward pause when he says it's a serious sport to him that I think is maybe, uh, maybe a little telling, um, but kind of fun at the same time. Um, what else? I mean, we mentioned before that Jimmy Hart is in this. There are like a handful of other kind of local wrestlers from the time. I guess Jimmy Hart is the most notable, but if you happen to be a big fan of the lesser known characters of Memphis wrestling circa 1981, you might get to glimpse, glimpse them in this, which is cool. Oh, actually, if you look closely during the first Lawler Kaufman match, you might notice that ringside, one of the ringside photographers is a young Jim Cornette uh, before he dropped the camera in favor of the tennis racket. So that's kind of neat that he was there for this. Yeah. Uh, he talks about on his podcast. Sometimes he talks about being around for this and kind of, watching it from his, his lowly status as photography boy. It makes sense. I feel like it probably influenced the way that he approached his heel character later on. You know, he, he did kind of adopt that kind of, you know, I'm superior to you, even though I'm kind of a, you know, weakling kind of sniveling little weakling kind of character. So mm-hmm. I could totally see him being really into the Sandy stuff. Uh, what else about this? Oh, at one point during an angle, they revealed that Andy was voted number two in the turkey contest in memphis which i guess they were having a turkey contest which was like a way to vote like your least favorite wrestlers i think um but i really want to know who was voted number one they don't tell me that which is a shame i I did some googling today trying to figure out the results of the 1982 memphis wrestling turkey contest and if you would believe it it was not in my first page of search results so (laughs) that's a shame yeah um One more thing about this. If you are putting together a list of appearances on film by the rollerblading Venice Beach guitar legend Harry Perry, well, I got news for you. He's in this. They they do that montage that every movie does where we're in Hollywood now and we're showing you the movie studios. We're showing you people eating hot dogs at Tale of the Pup. And we're showing you Venice Beach with Harry Perry rollerblading around with his guitar shredding out so shout out to harry still out there still kicking it by the way you, you can still see him if that means anything to you uh go out to venice beach see harry perry he's he's still still kicking it but uh, i love seeing him in this i loved re-watching this in general um this is something that i like i said watched a million times as a kid i think i watched it a couple times in my 20s as well maybe once in my thirties, but it's been a while and it was great to go back and, and revisit this, you know, as, as familiar as it is having seen it in biopics, having read about it in Bob Zamuda's book and all this stuff still, it it still hits. It's still very funny and very compelling. I agree. This was wildly influential to me as a young man. Um, it's the, the blurring of, um, you know, especially like once I learned more about it later on, like I would watch it kind of mindlessly on comedy central as a kid and be like, this is very weird and crazy and fun. But then, you know, like learning more about him after, like I got into him more like later in high school and I, I read like Bob Zamuda's book and I read a couple other biographies of his and then man on the moon came out and, and I was just so, so enamored with, with the invention of trolling basically that he did and you know the way that he would play these these different characters and stuff 
Have you read that book, um, Andy Kaufman, I Hate Your Guts? Speaking of books, I, I haven't read it yet, but I, I noticed that this week doing research for the show that I guess Lynn published a book of all the letters that were written to Andy Kaufman from the viewers of the Memphis wrestling, basically saying, Andy, I, I hate you and et cetera, you know, just. I have not. No, I've read uh, like in, Into the Funhouse, I think is the name of it, is one of the biographies. And then I've read uh, Bob Zamuda's book about him. But not this. I need to read this. This sounds yeah. great. I didn't even know about this. Those are the only two that I have as well, which I feel like those came came out around the same time. And I was like, I was in full Kaufman mode back then when those books were coming out. Yeah, yeah, same. And um, and then especially like the Tony Clifton stuff where like he was just like in it. He was just like, I'm just going to be Tony Clifton. I was so much so that he would smoke and eat meat while being Tony Clifton, this alter ego character. And then you know, he would die of lung cancer. Like probably his, probably the first guy who commitment to the bit killed him, like literally. Um, and I just loved all that stuff. And then when I like started writing and doing like the pool party zine and stuff, I wrote under a pen name and like, that was like kind of the idea, like influenced by Andy Kaufman and then like the Hunter S Thompson slash Raul Duke character. And then like, then obviously like Guar and some other things, David Bowie, Ziggy Stardust and stuff. But like, like I just wanted to be like a different character, like a different human who was uh, just a huge troll, <laughs> basically mm-hmm. just like Tony uh, Clifton. And is and, is this the point at which you're willing to reveal for the very first time on air your actual name, which is not Parker Bowman? My actual name, oddly enough, is Tony Clifton. It's a weird coincidence. Yeah. <laughs> on my birth I didn't believe it the first time you told me that, but yeah, I've yeah. checked the receipts. It's true. <laughs> He's got the long form birth cert. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, so I mean, I was just like all in on this and I loved it and I just, I wanted to do stuff like this. Um, and, and I mean, watching this now, it's like, I mean, it's, it's pretty incredible how, you know, how much was probably influenced by this. I mean, you mentioned Jim Cornette and that's probably true. And then, I mean, reality TV, I mean, just like, probably owes a bit of gratitude to this because as you said, it was being covered by the news and then the matches were being televised and you had like this mix of, you know, celebrity, like people were caring greatly about what this celebrity was doing and hating him uh, partly probably just because he was a celebrity and then partly hating him because he was a douchebag of a celebrity. Um, And so I, I feel like maybe a lot of that came out of this and then, Obviously, Did wrestlers so, e- even show up on talk shows before '82? You know what? It, like, yeah, was was Johnny Carson hosting Bob Backlund or anything? Like, I, I feel like that whole like like the idea of utilizing other mass media to direct attention towards wrestling is such a huge thing now that they were way ahead of back then. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I you know because I mean there were the territories, so it's like if you brought a guy on to a national talk show, it wouldn't, it would only make sense to like three States, you know, like everybody else would be like, who the fuck's this guy? So like, I can't imagine that a lot of those guys were doing like anything like that. Um, and then, I mean, I also, I mean, I don't know a lot about like pre WrestleMania three wrestling, but like, I feel like, you know, if you were like, I feel like Ric Flair is like the, you know, the, the the old timey heel that I kind of think of, and his whole thing is like he you know, he was kind of a bad guy because he was a rich playboy, but like 
he probably knew he was the like Ric Flair in character probably thought he was the good guy in the situation. Like, um, and like, he wasn't like purposefully flaunting his, his riches to like make people hate him. Like he was doing it probably to make people like him, like in character, you know? So like, Andy, like, I feel like maybe that's how heels worked at the time is like, I don't know. They weren't just like so overtly evil, but I'm not sure. Like, I don't know a lot about that era of wrestling, but like Andy just being 100% evil, I feel like, and so cowardly and so like flaunting yeah. his celebrity, his real celebrity too. I mean, when Ric Flair was doing that stuff, he wasn't necessarily as rich as he was saying. He wasn't necessarily taking limos everywhere. Um, but Andy was. Andy was a rich, yeah. <laughs> wealthy star. One of the on one of the biggest TV shows in the world. So like when he yeah. was flaunting this stuff, like you know, I feel like that's a whole new era of wrestling. Like you know, later on when, um, you know, I mean, like you know, guys now who are doing like MJF, like he's this great heel who, who um comes off as real because he was a real like child actor and he did grow up wealthy and he did grow up like meeting guys like CM Punk. So when he brings that up in his stuff, it's like a lot more real than. You know, I feel like, you know, you got at the time, like, you know. Yeah. Who was well, like, there's an interview with Jerry Jarrett where he mentioned that, um, you know, they would give Andy Kaufman checks for his, you know, performances. They paid him just like any other wrestler on the card. He got the same kind of pay as, uh, you know, I think as like main event wrestlers. And he never cashed the checks uh, the whole time. He, he didn't need the money. Like, this was not about the money at all for him. Uh, he just, he loved the wrestling. That is but, wild. I love that. Well, yeah, and for us, you know, and if you remove if you remove yourself from the heat of the whole situation, as a wrestling fan, you're like, well, that's great, and I love it. But also in the moment, that could make you even more angry to be like, this guy is so fucking rich, he doesn't even need this. He's just coming down here to talk <laughs> shit about us. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, but, so I mean, I feel like he, he kind of invented like modern heelism. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, I might be wrong about that. Well, I, th- I think it's that combination of like cowardly and evil that I feel like is unique to him because probably, and again, I'm also not a big expert in like, you know, 1970s wrestling or anything, but I feel like there probably were guys back in the 60s, 70s, like Killer Kowalski or whatever, who were like heels in the way of like, they're kind of like pure evil, but they're also kind of like mindless monsters. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. this guy's just an animal, you know, you can't touch him. He's, you know, he'll go crazy. But Andy was more just like, you know, he was calculating, cowardly, not really looking for a fight as much as he's looking to just piss you off. Yeah, like, I think that's exemplified here, like, when they have Jimmy Hart's henchmen who are just like mindless monsters. Like, yeah, I think you're right. I think like maybe a lot of heels were like that at the time. And um, and I mean, not all of them, because I mean, like, you know, there was like Ric Flair and like Billy Graham, I think he was a heel, like people like that, but... But yeah, I think yeah. he revolutionized heelism. And then also, um, I mean, you know, I think that, um, you know, obviously mixing celebrity and stuff with wrestling, uh, he did that with this. And that's all of what wrestling is now. Like, you know, you can't turn on wrestling without seeing Shaq or Bad Bunny or somebody show up. Um, and so I'm like, yeah, I just feel like, you know, and then, and then the meta-ness of everything, like, the fact that what he was saying 
was true. Like, you know, this, I'm from Hollywood and I'm rich and everything. Like it was like, that's true. So it's like, he's kind of introducing like meta narratives into wrestling as well. Um, which is, you know, probably pretty cutting edge just in general. Like, I mean, there probably wasn't like a whole lot of meta-ness and like, you know, like there's like the clip in this where he's talking about, you know, how his job at taxi is in jeopardy and, you know, his wife is leaving him and stuff. So to pull <laughs> like that stuff in and to actually talk about taxi, um, I think is, is really interesting too. Uh, so yeah, I think he just invented so much stuff here that we see all the time now. Um, and I mean, you know, and obviously stuff like Jackass and Tom Green and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, so it's just wild to see this guy. And then, uh, you know, another part of this that's kind of a bummer is, I mean, he died like a year after some of these matches. Yeah. Um, and I mean, he was probably sick while doing yeah. some of this stuff. So I heard I mean, some I, of these wrestlers caught cancer from him, which, you know, it's a shame that... <laughs> good finishing move <laughs> yeah. um, but but i mean you can, you can hear him like in some of these interviews you know he's like talking to uh lance russell and he's he's coughing a lot so I'm, I, yeah, yeah. He's, i'm sure he was sick yeah yeah he's coughing a lot he there's like a couple of uh like later in some of the later stuff with jimmy hart like he looks awful like i mean he looks like he's really sick like he's just pale and like bloated and and does not look good so I mean, I don't know if he was just living that Tony Clifton life or, or if he was, or how long he had lung cancer. But yeah, he, you know, it's wild that he was doing such strenuous stuff at pretty much the very end of his life. Um, Yeah. Well, and, and also wild, I mean, how young he died. I mean, we do think about the fact that, you know, he died young, but it's like 35, I think, right? It's like, Jesus Christ. Yeah. 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 Pretty, pretty crazy. Um, it would have been interesting to see like with the kind of stuff he would have gotten into. I mean, you know, like in the age of stuff like Borat and uh, Tom Green and all that kind of stuff, if he would have, you know, been leading the way or if he would have kind of just fallen off and been, you know, and not adapted well. Although I can't imagine yeah. like he was just so smart. Like I'd imagine he'd still be doing like the best shit ever right now. But, but it's possible. I mean, it, it could be that we would be here complaining at the top of the show that there was too much Andy at this year's WrestleMania. Get this old comedian out and give me a real wrestler, you know? That's very possible. Uh, although I, I would want to see that Sami Zayn versus Andy Kaufman versus Johnny Knoxville match. Um, well, yeah, this maybe, is really Maybe good. someday, you know, if, if, if the rumors are true, maybe he'll come yeah, out of hiding. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, this is super fun and it's still very funny. Like there are some scenes that like just make me laugh so hard. Like, um, you know, when he's teaching rednecks how to wash their hands and talking about how he's not going to shake anybody's hands after the match because they're everybody in the South's hands are so greasy and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. Just the um, way that he says Memphis. I just, I just <laughs> love it. I can't even do it, but the way that he does it is great. Yeah, it's just wonderful. Like just the the art of making people mad. He just perfected it. Um so yeah, so I I love this. I think this is great. Awesome. Yeah, and and I mean the other thing that about about this, you know, that I think is so impressive is this whole thing. I mean, if you include the the wrestling angles and then, you know, whatever interviews they shot with a few of his famous friends and cutting this together, 
I mean, the amount of resources spent on this are so minimal, especially considering like the impact that it has had over the decades. And, you know, the fact that this guy can just roll into Memphis and out of thin air can create these moments with a live audience that generates so much heat that they'll never be forgotten, you know, and, and then, you know, marry it together with these cheap ass promos that he shot with Zamuda in his backyard or whatever that were probably free to make, you know, and I would argue that this stuff has had a much more profound impact, certainly on me, but I'm guessing even on just the culture at large than like any single episode of taxi, which costs probably millions of bucks to produce. I mean, this thing punches way above its weight and, and, you know, that's one of the things I love about it. Yeah. And also, I mean, like what a great like time capsule. And I mean, you know, it's like, I mean, everybody always says like, oh, you can't do that nowadays and everything. But like, imagine if the guy who plays Sheldon on Big Bang Theory came on TV and he was like, all the women in Memphis, Tennessee are fat slobs and all the men are stupid hicks. Like he would be taken off TV immediately. Like, (laughs) you know, like, but Andy Kaufman was one of the main guys on one of the main TV shows and he was just going on TV and like insulting half of the audience you know like it's just beautiful to see yeah and and, i mean yeah even in wrestling now when you're not dealing with celebrities who have you know obviously a a lot to lose and got to be careful about what they say but i feel like even with just wrestlers versus wrestlers it is very tame now and, and people are not willing i don't i don't feel that willingness to totally incense the audience anymore you know, they, they want to play the heel in kind of a a safe way where they want the crowd to be in on them being a heel. But I think Andy didn't care if people would actually potentially follow him out of the arena, you know, maybe even with you know, shotgun in hand or, you know, blazing torches. You know, he was willing to be chased through the town square if that's what it needed to be. Yeah, yeah. And which makes like the other half of his personality, like all that much like sweeter where he's like finishing up a Carnegie hall show and then taking everybody out for milk and cookies and stuff like that. He's got that side too. It's like so fun. Absolutely. Robin Williams has a quote in this where he says, Andy made himself the premise and the entire world is the punchline. And it's a quote that I feel like I've been kind of kicking around in my brain off and on for 30 years or whatever And I'm not sure that I fully understand it even now, but I do think that I fully agree with it. So Mm -hmm. he said one good thing in this, Robin did, you know, in between all these lame jokes about having to buy ring ropes for Andy and all this stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, He's one for 12 in (laughs) this. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, I think that about wraps it up for our review of I'm from Hollywood. Um, hope you all enjoyed it. And now is the, maybe the most exciting part of the show. It's, it's part of the show that I even, I'll be honest with you, forgot was a part of the show until I just got to it right now. And it just crossed my mind. <laughs> oh, I got to ask Parker Bowman what his pick is for next week, because we can't even announce next week's show without it. So is, well, uh, is it something that, that, you know, is going to be wrestling related? Is it going to be, are we going back to dance? I don't know. Well, I've been I've been pouring this over all week because I'm kind of torn. Like, there's a couple of couple of ways I kind of want to go. Like, like I said, I do want to do my breakfast with Blassie, but at this point, 
I don't think I can pick it because I've never seen my dinner with Andre, and it wouldn't make sense to do that first. There are two other movies that go in wildly different directions um, from this starting point of Andy Kaufman that I do okay. want to do, but I, I think that you don't like one of them, and I don't know how you feel about the other, but... It, I, th- I think also that you might not like it. I think you got to just make the choice. I, I don't think it's prudent to present me with two options. I don't think that's what this show is. I think this show is you want to watch something and I'm along for the ride. Okay. All right. Well, this is kind of a gamble. I don't know if it'll pay off. I think maybe it seems like you're in a place like myself where you're kind of into late nineties nostalgia. Um, so maybe this will tickle you. Okay, I'm, I'm not sure how you got that impression, but okay. I th- I feel like that's been a thing recently where you're kind of like you you like Cherry Falls and you've looked back fondly on Dude, Where's My Car? I, I feel like you've been watching like late 90s, early 2000s things and and feeling nostalgic for that time period. Am I wrong? I feel like you've said this before. Uh, I mean, I guess I am nostalgic just for my own youth and like hanging out with certain friends who I don't get to see anymore, but... uh. As a time period for media, I think late '90s, early 2000s is it's it's among my least favorite, but but I am intrigued. Okay, well, this is a movie it involves wrestling, uh, blurs the lines between reality and fiction, Ooh. features a, a celebrity who got involved with wrestling, and oh. much like much like the Sandy Kaufman story, features a a cancer that would go on to kill the entire wcw wrestling company i think we should talk about would it be a a famous family who uh is involved in this wrestling wrestler that the the guy that i'm talking is he from an acting dynasty he is from a dynasty okay then then i'm very excited where where are you going with this because i am in fact ready to rumble Oh my God. All right. Let's talk about Ready to Rumble, the hit movie made by WCW that was the nail in their coffin. <laughs> I've never seen it. I, at the time, I was writing WCW Nitro recaps on a weekly basis for OneWrestling.com. And so I, mm-hmm. I was watching all the WCW, um, but I was not so into David Arquette getting involved and I was not so into Master P and, and all these celebrities showing up and yeah, I never checked out this movie. Okay. I saw it when it came out, uh, even though I didn't watch WCW at the time. So I probably didn't have a lot of context for it. But uh, but all right. Perfect. Ready to Rumble, starring David Arquette and Rose McGowan and DDP. Oh, really? Rose McGowan's in it? She is. I didn't even remember that. Okay. Well, that, that makes it an even sweeter deal for me. All right. Perfect. That's what we'll do. All right. Is it streaming somewhere? Do we know? Um, let me check. Yeah, let's let's see if this is anywhere easier. If you're going to be sending me your Blu-ray copy, then I'll have to FedEx um, back to you. You can rent it for two ninety nine at all the major places. Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. If you don't like it, I'll buy you a coffee at uh, Monster Palooza. Make <laughs> well, up for the two ninety nine you spent. Considering the 22% rating on Rotten Tomatoes for this movie, I feel like it's <laughs> it's got a, a fighting chance of satisfying me, I suppose. Um, okay, 
but it, yeah, so that'll be next week. Um, everybody out there, if you want to watch long, watch Ready to Rumble. Um, but until then, I think that's about all we've got. So we'll be wrapping it up here. This is, uh, you know, well, well, I guess before we fully wrap it up, I can tell you, go check out all of the things. Go to junkfooddinner.com. Go to patreon.com slash junkfooddinner. We're still doing Patreon bonus content. It's a little different now. that We're doing shorter bite-sized things on a more regular schedule, but go check that out. Uh, send us an email at jftpodcast at gmail.com. Leave us a voicemail either by going to facebook.com slash junkfooddinner and clicking on the call now button or by dialing that number that we tell you every week, which is what, 347-746-JUNK? I think so, which yep. I think is 5865. Uh, call oh, yeah. that. Add it to your phone. Um, do all the things. See us on Instagram. Acknowledge us, as Roman Reigns would say. <laughs> and uh, yeah, this is uh, your friend, Sen Byro, for your other friend, Perky Beantown Bowman, saying keep washing them dishes. Actually, I thought his opinion stunk.